Welcome back to the VMP Anthology Podcast. I'm your host, Andrew Winnestorfer. In this, our second season, we're talking about the women of Motown and the eight albums featured in the second edition of VMP Anthology. In episode one, Taking a Chance, I talk with Susan Whitehall, the writer of the liner notes for our box set, about the first three albums in the box, which, as you know by now, are Mary Wells' Bye Bye Baby, I Don't Want to Take a Chance, Martha and the Vandellas' Heat Wave, and The Supremes' Where Did Our Love Go? On this episode, Susan and I talk about Mary Wells being the blueprint for every Motown diva who came after her. We'll also talk about how Martha and the Vandellas' impact feels muted now, but they were one of the biggest acts in the early days of the label. And we'll cover the Supremes, who along with the Temptations, blew the door open and made Motown into THE Motown. Stay tuned to the end of this episode to hear some hints about what albums are in those Episode 2 secrecy sleeves in your box right now. You know you took While Smokey Robinson's Miracles were the first superstars on Motown, and Claudette Robinson, a member of the group, the label's first signed female artist, Mary Wells was the label's first solo star. Without her, you don't get Marvin, Diana, Stevie, or Michael. Her first song on Motown was Bye Bye Baby, the title track for her eventual debut LP, Bye Bye Baby, I Don't Want to Take a Chance. Bye Bye Baby was the first song Wells ever wrote, as she decided as a teenager that she could maybe make a living as a songwriter. She sat down and wrote Bye Bye Baby with the idea that it would be sung by Jackie Wilson. When she found herself in a nightclub at the same time as Barry Gordy, then known locally as Wilson's songwriter, she told him she had a song she wrote for Wilson. Gordy, thinking that he was being hassled by another fan of Wilson's, told Wells she had a few seconds to make an impression, so she sang it to him in the hallway of the club. He told her to come to Hitsville the next day to talk about what they could do with the song. When Wells arrived the next morning, Gordy offered her a recording contract with Motown. She wasn't going to just be a songwriter, she was going to be an artist. Because Wells was only 17 at the time, she had to get her mom to co-sign the contract. She recorded Bye Bye Baby later that day. It took 22 takes of the song to get it right, but you could hear from that first well that Wells was an original. Her bluesy voice was harder edged than any Motown singer who came after her. She'd have 11 more top 100 hits on Motown, including the first ever number one single in Motown history, My Guy, a song written and produced by Smokey. Wells was the first Motown performer to have a Billboard Top 10 and number one single, and first solo artist to record a full-length album. She's also the first Motown performer to tour Europe, where she opened for a little band called The Beatles in 1964. She'd leave the label that same year when she bristled at the profits from her My Guy single getting pumped into promoting the Supremes' Where Did Our Love Go, particularly since the girl groups had started overshadowing solo women at that time. She had to sue the label for back profits and cite signing the contract as a minor to leave the label, which would become pivotal in the label's future relations with its artists. She'd unfortunately never match that level of fame away from Hitsville. Wells's career launched with Bye Bye Baby, I Don't Want to Take a Chance. This album represents an era when Motown was still figuring things out. Wells' debut is a mix of blues, soul, and gospel, moving towards the eventual unified sound of Detroit soul. We selected it for this box set because it's the blueprint for every woman on Motown who came after Wells. She set the template of what a Motown diva was expected to do and sound like. I don't care, I don't care what they may say.
So the first record in our box set is Mary Wells' uh, Bye Bye Baby. I don't want to take a chance. Um, and you mentioned in the liner notes that Gordy was you know, planning to have a woman star for years, and you mentioned a little bit before. Um, but can you kind of tell me the story of how Mary Wells gets into Barry's orbit? Yeah, she, she uh, walked up to him at a saw cop in De- here in Detroit, and um, she had that song she'd written for Jackie Wilson, really. And everybody knew that Barry was the conduit to Jackie Wilson because he wrote all those songs for him. And she was impressed with Barry Gordy, not because he was trying to launch this record company, about to launch it, but because he had written all these hit songs for Jackie Wilson. That's what she thought was cool. And um, she had this song, and she sang it for him right on the spot. And he was impressed not only with the song, but he liked her her teenage kind of delivery of it, as rough as it was on the spot. She had a real strong voice. And so he told her to come on in. I want you to record this. I want you to come to Motown. And she said, well, how do I get in? And will will they even let me in? He goes, they'll let you in. You just say who you are, and I will... I will see you. So that's what happened. And he, I'm not sure how his thinking shifted, but he he went from having a dull ex such as Mabel, Mabel John, um, and the Miracles were younger, but here here with Mary, he had an actual teenager, and he thought, well, I'm going for the teenage market. This is a good sound. This, we'll we'll try what we can on her. So that's what they started uh, recording everything on her. And he still had her in a bluesy mode at first. Mm -hmm. And I think you can really hear that on this first record. It's like, you compare that to my guy that came later. It's like a lot like raw, you know, it's a bluesier sound. Yeah. I was talking to one of the Motown folks about how they always tried to push people in the studio out of their comfort zone, the singers. Mm -hmm. Like that. Holland Dozier Holland did that with uh, Levi Stubbs a lot. They'd have him singing higher than he liked to. And I think that's what Barry was pushing Mary in that, f- that first um, album on, on all those sessions. And I'm, it turns out, you know, Smokey had her in a softer vein a little later. Mm-hmm. And, you know, a thing that kind of comes up a couple of different places throughout this box set is that Barry Gordy was like really out in nightclubs all the time, like finding artists, which is like. I know. It's like, did the guy ever stay home? Yeah, because he was at the <laughs> studio all the time and then was apparently out, you know. Yeah. Because he discovered Mary out. He was, I think Tammy Terrell was a similar story. Yeah. Like, yeah. yeah. And yeah, he caught her on, the, I believe it was the James Brown Review or one of the reviews she was on. And yeah, it even, and it, it's extended to the 70s. And, um, just amazing. Mm-hmm. If he doesn't go out all every night, how big is their roster? <laughs> you know, yeah, like, I know. Yeah. And it's one guy. It's like, where's your ENR guys? It's their job. <laughs> right. So, you know, Mary kind of became the the first like queen of Motown. And a thing that you uh, that I liked you talked about in the liner notes was sort of that like everybody that came after her was sort of like she was the model. Mm-hmm. Like that was like the starting template in a way that like everybody after Mary was sort of like a response to that or like that's what Barry was going for. Exactly. It's easy to forget, especially if you're younger, um, how big a star she was. Because um, I, the age I am, I was hearing her on the radio a lot. I never got to see her until later in her career. 
there was a revival of a Motown show. Um, but Dave Marsh brought it home to me very vividly. Dave loved Mary Wells, and he said he was pushed into adolescence by looking at the cover of one of her albums. <laughs> she was so fabulous in that gold lame dress. Mm-hmm. He just he could not get enough of her. And uh, Mabel John said they used to have to try to protect her when they were running her from the car to the into the um, hall where they were playing because these teenagers wanted to tear, you know rip her clothes off and just get at her. Mm-hmm. It was huge. I know the the disc jockeys here they would make all sorts of appearances, and this was before Motown really had a very slick PR operation too. So these early days, it was strictly based on. The kids would hear the records on the radio, and they'd, they'd get all hyped up, and they'd want to go see this act. It wasn't like uh, someone was calling up the newspapers and say, hey, profile these people. Come on. I did see, because um, I have access to the Detroit News Archive, and I love looking at these old Motown stories. There was an early interview with Mary, and um, she's a teenager, and they, they not only zeroed in on her high school, but they had the exact shift she was on like um you know some of the high school kids would would um had a january graduation date and mm-hmm. some at june and so they specified that and um so just she just talked about her little life and how it had changed quickly and mm-hmm. it really did for her but yeah. what's sad is though not sad sad but disappointing is that after that initial song she didn't really get to write any of her material they had, she had Smokey writing for her and you know, everybody else. Yeah, and then she, you know, ended up having to leave, left the label um, to go to a different place, and then. Well. Yeah. That was. I can't blame Motown for that. I don't think because she had bad advice from her husband at the time, who was also trying to direct her, the band while the orchestra while she was on stage. As Mickey Stevenson one told, once told me one time that he he kept trying to put a kibosh on this on the husband's influence on her career, and he was talking to Mr. Gordy, saying, "We've got to stop this. He's doing backflips on stage. <laughs> like when he's supposed to be conducting the orchestra, he's never conducted an orchestra before." And Mr. Gordy would just say, "That's her husband. We can't. We have to respect her relationship. Mm-hmm. We can't get in between them." And that's what happened. Mm -hmm. She went off to uh, 21st Century, I think, was her first after Motown. And they did not have the paternalistic setup where they took care of everything for her. And it was kind of a rude awakening. Yeah, and I feel like part of that is why she's maybe not as, like, revered Mm -hmm. as she probably deserves at this point. That, like, she maybe left, she left Motown, like, right before the real boom happened. Like, she was part of the... The like climb, and then when they hit the plateau at the mm-hmm. top, she was off the label already. You know, it's so it happened so fast because like 1963, um, Stevie Wonder's on top of the heap with Fingertips Part Two, and he's here's this kid, he's mm-hmm. got the number one record in the country, and so you see he's on top of the bill for several of the radio station gigs, the Christmas parties, and the Supremes are way down here. Because 64 hasn't really happened yet. That's mm-hmm. when they're going to explode. So the ill no-hit Supremes, who cares? It's the Temptations, it's Marvin Gaye, and it's uh, it's Stevie. Mm-hmm. It would have been Mary, too. So he up to me
There used to be a saying in Detroit during the Motown 60s that if you could sing or play an instrument, you could show up at Hitsville and get a contract. Little did the label know that one of its early stars was already working at Motown behind a desk. Martha Reeves, born in Eufaula, Alabama, but raised in Detroit, was discovered by Motown's A&R director, Mickey Stevenson, when she was singing covers and standards in a Detroit nightclub. He handed her his card and told her to come audition at Hitsville. When she showed up the next day, unsure of whether or not she should have scheduled something in advance, Stevenson was too busy to meet with her, but asked her if she knew how to answer phones. She did, and she began working as the main assistant for the A&R department at Motown, scheduling the house band for sessions, organizing auditions, and doing anything else that needed to be done A&R-wise. She'd also occasionally pop into sessions to sing backup or clap her hands on songs that needed extra manpower in the studio. Meanwhile, Martha had been singing in a group called The Vells that released a couple singles on chess that all flopped. The group was regrouping and figuring out what to do next in the summer of 1962, when Mary Wells couldn't show up to record vocals for a new single written by Stevenson called I'll Have to Let Him Go. Needing a singer, in those days, union musicians couldn't cut an official version of a song without a lead performer present, Stevenson asked Reeves to stand in and cut reference vocals for the song, with the intention of having Wells record her vocals at a later date. Stevenson loved Reeves' take so much, he decided to add backing vocals. On a short notice, the Vell showed up and backed Reeves up, and the Vandellas were born. As a quartet, the Vandellas became the ace backing group on Motown singles. They backed Marvin Gaye up on many of his early songs, though they didn't have their own first hit until early 1963, when Come and Get These Memories cracked the top 30 on the pop charts. That song was one of the earliest triumphs of the Holland brothers and Lamont Dozier, who'd be celebrated as Holland Dozier Holland, the writers of a huge swath of the best and most popular songs on Motown. Martha and the Vandellas would ascend even higher later in 1963. Heat Wave hit number four on the pop charts, an early smash for Holland Dozier Holland, and the song that made Martha Reeves and the Vandellas household names. The group was out touring to support Heat Wave when the decision was made to have them cut another LP. Their first had come out in early 1963. Gordy sent them to the studios at Hitsville for a marathon night of recording, and they came out with the group's sophomore album, Heat Wave, included in VMP Anthology. As was custom at the time, the group recorded covers of a lot of songs that were already hits, like Donka Shane and My Boyfriend's Back. But the album represents an important transition at Motown. The age of the girl group had dawned, and the Vandellas would give way to acts like the Supremes, the Marvelettes, the Velvelettes, and more. So Martha and the Vandellas, Heat Wave. Yeah. Um, we mentioned that she started as a secretary, uh, which I just think the the story of her showing up and tr- going for an audition and then being like, "Do you know how to answer phones?" Mm-hmm. and her being like, "Okay," and then that's how she sort of winded her way into the label. Yeah. Yeah, that's that was perfect because she sang backup, brought in uh, two of her friends, and they sang backup on all those Marvin Gaye. Records and what's cool is you can, she's got such a distinctive voice. You can hear her uh, in the backing track on the song to like Hitchhike and 
all those all those Marvin hits. She's right there, right with him. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and she's got funny stories about those days recording with Marvin. He's like they tried to teach him how to dance, and <laughs> he could not. That man could not dance. <laughs> but as Martha and all the other women say, he didn't have to. He was too good looking. He just stood up there, and but they did teach him a, a hitchhike dance. So if if you look on YouTube, you can find it. it he's kind of doing uh, the rudiments of the hitchhike dance. And it's a little awkward, but you can blame the Vandellas. They didn't teach him well enough. (laughs) So this record was recorded in just one night. Yes. In 1963. Yes. The thing that, like, that that fact alone is insane. But the the idea of, like, how much of a factory Hitsville Mm -hmm. already was, like, in 1963. Yeah. This is three years after the label proper basically launches. And they're already set up to record an entire album in eight hours. And that same night, they also, they sang on a Marvin Gaye session, too. (laughs) (laughs) And then they flew back to Baltimore to finish out their their gig there. Mm -hmm. That's just nuts. Yeah. As Martha put it, you know, it's youth, and they had some sort of... um, they had some doctor prescribe them something for their throats and they just got through it. Yeah. And I just think, yeah, it's just like a, it's a crazy thing that like that was a way that music operated sort of mm-hmm. in 1963. Mm-hmm. And then that that record, I think Heatwave is the only original on there. Right. Or maybe there's. Um, I think there might be another. Yeah. It, it's uh, but they were they did more. They did all uh, the hits of the day. Right. I think it's Hello Stranger by Barbara Lewis. Um Anyway, um, and the, the the Funk Brothers were set up to do an amazing job. Mm-hmm. And you, can, you can hear in the, the instrumentation, too. By then, Earl Van Dyke was the band leader, and things had gotten a little smoother. They weren't as rough, and, and they weren't as funky. Mm-hmm. And I like saxophone solos out of the blue just because. Or mm-hmm. So he had a, he really kind of locked down the sound pretty well, and... Those guys, it's really fun to hear them on on this the Martha stuff. Joe Messina is still alive and uh, well and playing, the Motown guitarist. And so one, there was one um, guitar bit on one of the songs that I really wanted to know who was playing that, and I, he couldn't remember that particular session. But I mean, they recorded it in eight hours. If he's doing a lot at that <sighs> point, you know. Who's going to do a lot over the years? Mm-hmm. So when yeah. he when he does remember a lick, like there, there's one from uh, um, "Someday We'll Be Together." That's him on that little recurring guitar riff through "Someday We'll Be Together" by Diana Ross and mm-hmm. the Supremes. When he does remember something like that, it's like, why do you remember that? What was it about that session that was so memorable? Or uh, Stevie Wonder for uh, "Once in My Life." He remembers that because the songwriter happened to be in the studio that day. And he was like, I wrote that song. (laughs) So Joe remembers that. Yeah. You say in the liner notes, it's really hard to overstate how beloved Martha Reeves and the Vandellas were in those early days. Yeah. Um, Can you you kind of just expand on that? Yeah. Well, they were um, like the... The Marvelettes, um, they had the more authentic sound, but they were they went took it even further, and they had a real rhythm and blues sound to their to their music, more so than the Supremes, more so than the the other female artists who were a little smoother maybe, and they also they just that rhythmic joy of dancing in the streets on the earlier the heat wave, 
Heat Wave is just such a big hit that summer, and kids went crazy, and they could dance to it, and it sounded great. It was the perfect, the perfect um, Motown sound in those early days because it, it was raw enough, but it was still pop. Mm-hmm. You know, and people kind of criticized Motown later on for being too slick, too smooth, but not Martha and the Reeves, not in the early days. And her voice is so strong, and it's partly church, a little bit of church, and there's a little bit of, uh, I know, her favorite singers. Um, so it's, it really is fantastic stuff. And mm-hmm. if the, this, when the Supremes did come along and they supplanted her a bit, you can tell there was a little bit of sadness there. She once said to me that, and I think it was in my book, Women in Motown, with, with Gordy and the Supremes and Martha and the Vandellas, she kind of felt like a daughter who was less valued at one point Mm. like now this is his favorite and that this is going to happen now and you can see that as a fan even you can say well why did you why didn't you give them a little more attention at this time as well and not yeah the supremes are taken off but don't forget Mm -hmm. these groups because ultimately like i said um the Detroiters, especially Detro- um, black Detroiters who were into music, would sometimes laugh at the Supremes a little bit because they, like I said, they had those stiff ladylike moves, you know. Mm-hmm. They were not funky. They couldn't dance. Yeah. Never. <laughs> it feels like Martha and the Vandellas were sort of like the midway point between Mary Wells and the Supremes. So, yeah. like, the, it's getting more professional. Like, the songwriting thing is becoming more of a factory, like... Yeah. But I'll tell you, the professionalism on those Martha and the Vandola songs right. is top notch. It's I guess that, I meant more like pop, that kind of professional, I guess. The like mainstream. A little more teenage pop. Yeah, yeah. There you go. That's what the Supremes really saw. That that was an evolution to that. And Holland Dozier Holland did that on purpose. Mm-hmm. Um, with Martha, there was a little bit of wildness there. A little bit of, we're, we're going to really have a party tonight. But with the Supremes, it was like, you know, it's like your first date and uh, going to the prom and Mm -hmm. my first heartbreak. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Um, Yeah, and I guess like Heat Wave was sort of the coming out party for Holland Dozier Holland in a way as well. That like, yeah, this is their first like really big single. And then they become sort of the the star songwriters at Motown for the better part of five or six years there. It launched them, and what what's great to me is what I always love about Motown is that big band sound, that boom that comes out of the speakers, and you can really first hear it on Heat Wave. The band is just huge, mm-hmm. and Holland Dozier Holland, they just they they crack the code. They got that big sound all of a sudden. It wasn't Barry, it wasn't Smokey, it was HDH. Like boom, the band just was so powerful. In some ways, you can divide the Motown 60s into BTS and ATS, as in before the Temptations and the Supremes and after. They were the two groups who became monoliths that helped put the Motown sound in every home in America, white and black, and gave the label a second wave of hitmakers. But the success of the Supremes was not preordained. The group, originally called the Primettes, was formed by three women of Detroit's Brewster Douglas projects. Florence Ballard, Mary Wilson, and Diana Ross. 
Like so many other girl groups in Detroit, they hung around Hitsville trying to get noticed before they were given a shot to audition for Gordy. He liked what he saw, but encouraged the group to stay in school. He let them record hand claps and backing vocals on Motown cuts in the meantime. Gordy finally signed them in 1961, but under the condition that they changed their name. The Supremes were born. Their early records left little impression on the listening public. They were far down the priority list at Motown, particularly after their 1962 debut LP, Meet the Supremes, was a dud. The group was opening tours on the Motown Review and had not much by way of momentum when a Holland Dozier Holland song came into their lives. It would be the first of five number one pop singles in a row, and the first of 12 overall for the group, and result in more than 20 million album sales. It was, of course, Where Did Our Love Go? There are a number of possibly apocryphal tales around the song. It allegedly got rejected as a possible single by the Marvelettes, who thought it was too bubbly and slight for them to record. Even Diana Ross herself apparently called the song lousy before going into the booth to record her vocals. Little did she know that she'd be recording the most important single in her singing career. The thing is, is the song is very bubbly. It's waltzing rhythm hiding the song's pretty sad lyrics. And it features one of the last sax solos on a popular Motown single. And the claps that you hear at the beginning of the song, those were made with the two by fours stashed together. But it's so perfect, a sensational display of all the Supremes had to offer. Ross's light as a feather leads and Wilson and Ballard's wells of sadness on the backing vocals. It's a perfect encapsulation of the Motown sound and it made the Supremes superstars. It helped that the group were on tour with Dick Clark's American Bandstand at the time that the single started gaining traction, as they were playing to groups of white kids who fell in love with the song and the group. Just a year after a similar explosion of interest happened with Martha Reeves and the Vandellas, Gordy had the group head into the studio for some last-minute sessions to put an album out to coincide with the song going to number one in August 1964. Instead of padding the album out like he had with Martha and the Vandellas, Gordy told Holland Dozier Holland to get to work on more songs for the group, and they eventually recorded three more originals and tacked on another four that they had already recorded, meaning that Where Did Our Love Go boasted eight of 12 originals by HDH. That technique meant that three singles from Where Did Our Love Go went to number one on the pop charts, Baby Love and Come See About Me being the other two. The success of the singles meant that the album became a juggernaut. It was the first LP in Billboard history to log three number one singles from the same album. It went to number two on Billboard's Top 200, blocked by only The Beatles' 1965. But it would remain on the charts for a whopping 89 weeks, at the time the highest ranking and best-selling album of an all-female group. The album would sell more than 3 million copies and be the first number one R&B album in the history of Billboard, which launched the R&B album charts in early 1965, partially due to the sales and domination of Motown. The Supremes would, in many ways, define the girl group in the popular imagination. They would have 12 number one hits in the five years between 1964 and 1969, inarguably the most successful group on Motown. We chose this album because it best showcases the alchemy of the group and how the distinct personalities of all three members is what made them into The Supremes, a group that it could inspire devotion and Oscar-nominated fictionalized accounts of their rise. None of what came after, for both the group members and Motown, would have been possible without this album. Ooh, 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 baby love. 
let's go to the Supremes then. Um, so they started out kind of just as kids hanging out at Hitsville, uh, asking to get signed or to yeah. help in any way. And they were girls who knew each other from high school and church, and there were four of them at first. And in fact, Mary has pointed out that um, when the love lights start shining in his eyes, that there's actually four Supremes on that. Yeah, and that's on that album, that mm-hmm. song. The rest of them, they're, they're the traditional threesome that we know of. Mm-hmm. But they hadn't lost Barbara Martin yet on that first hit. And that was a big hit here in Detroit when the love light started mm-hmm. shining in his eyes. That was big. Yeah, and you you call you say and you mentioned them earlier that like they were kind of called around here the no the, the no, no hit, hit supremes. They were always the cute girls who were on the bottom of the bill, and it's like, oh yeah, hi. They were very personable because they had to be. Mm-hmm. They were always talking to people and talking to the fans and talking to the DJs. And Barry was really good at that kind of promotion of taking them around, and he knew the importance of these disc jockeys and we have a club called the rooster tail in detroit still there now it's a private banquet facility but it was open to the public back then and they used to have what they called motown mondays over there motown mondays were a local disc jockey scott regan would be the host and they would have you could go see the temptations you could see Smokey, the four tops and the Supremes would usually open the show, you know. Mm-hmm. Hi, <laughs> you know, we're here. So it was like they were trying and they were, they really, uh, Mary Wilson gives Gordy credit for this. How many other labels would have kept them on all this time and just kept trying to throw in songwriters at them, throw mm-hmm. in songwriter producers, try, try, try. Well, maybe next year, maybe next month. And they kept at it until H.D. Edge again cracked the code on the Supremes and it, I, I found a, an old interview with um, Eddie Holland it was Eddie who worked with the singers more of the, the trio of them um, Brian would work with the band and uh, Lamont would compose the music and they all composed the music but he would kind of focus on that and um, so Eddie was saying that he told Diana when they went into the the sessions for that for that album, he wanted and uh, he wanted her. It was where did where did our love go specifically? The song, think, just act as if that your heart is totally broken. Like this is the worst thing that's ever happened to you. I want you to just be so you're almost crying. You're so sad, and just have it dripping from your voice. He thought that teenage girls would lap this up hearing a girl like them with that girlish, heartbroken, heartbroken sound, you know. Mm-hmm. And he, he was bright. He, it worked, and it fit her voice, that kind of little kittenish purr. Mm-hmm. It kind of fit her, you know. It, with Martha, Martha was a little more skeptical and world-weary, you know, and telling you what to do. And he was, she, was, she could be heartbroken, but she, she wanted her man. Whereas with Diana, it was just this, this whole teenage heartbreak thing that was just like catnap to kids. Mm-hmm. We loved it. And then they had the glamour image, too, where I was one of those kids who were, like, tuned into Ed Sullivan every week. What is she going to wear? Oh, my <laughs> God. Mary has a book out coming out in September, uh, Supreme Glamour, on those dresses. And that was an integral part of the whole thing. And then I remember my older brother had that album. Where did our love go? I had the Beatles album, Beatles 65. It was the same Christmas, and he had that. 
and those green dresses, I remember. It was like we would just stare at that album cover. And, you know, they were pretty girls. And, and it's a really important thing in terms of civil rights that all of us young white girls growing up um, in that, at that time, we wanted to look like them. We wanted to dress like them. Mm-hmm. We didn't think, see how, why not? <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah, and that's, I think, I mean, it's been written a lot, but, like, just how important Motown was just to, like, the integration of TV mm-hmm. in a way that, you know, my folks grew up in central Wisconsin, and they say that, like, seeing Motown acts was, like, when you would see black people on TV in a lot of cases. It was, because uh, for my parents' generation, it would be Lena Horne. They loved Billie Holiday. My mother would go see her when she was in college. But it was a lot more limited. And and plus, Billie was over there, and they all knew that Billie had issues, and she was sort of this adult with problems. Where here, the, the Supremes were these three you know, very pretty teenage girls, early 20s, dressed in a very, pre- not preppy, but very uh, wholesome Mm-hmm. You know, they could be the girls next door. And so they were very relatable for all sorts of girls and boys. Boys thought they were cute. And uh, so it was just the sound of young America exactly as he tagged it mm-hmm. for all of us. And we, I always say, um, my musical taste growing up in Detroit is the same as if I was a black woman my age. We, black man white man um we we heard the same music on the on the radio growing up here mm-hmm. so yeah it's, it's kind of a fun thing mm-hmm. um and i think one of the things that you really bring up and you mentioned it you mentioned them earlier but the sort of like similar arcs that motown and the beatles kind of had in the 60s where it's like a push pull for like who has control over young america right and then the idea that like <laughs> The Beatles started getting weird sort of when Motown started letting people compose their own stuff. And like, it feels like it was, it really was like two horses and a thing together. It was. And Brian Epstein, their their manager, actually visited Motown early on. It was, um, and that's why the, the Beatles did a lot of their cover versions and uh, vice versa. The contours ha- actually had a little act. They they did comedy as much as anything. They had to be versatile, and they did a whole act where they they put Beatle wigs on and came out and did this shtick. But you know, um, I inter- I got to interview Paul McCartney one time, and of course I had to talk to him about Detroit, Detroit, mm-hmm. James Jamerson, big big influence on him, mm-hmm. and he didn't. He said we didn't know what his name was. We they didn't give him credit on those early Motown records, but we just know, knew him as that monster bassist from Motown. And he said they used to like put the needle down on Motown records, he and the other Beatles, and they would they would play it again and again. Like, what, what, what's he doing there on drums? Wait a minute, what? Let's play that again. So they would analyze every single little thing in, in those records to see what's going on there. Mm-hmm. So when he came, uh, he helped fund the restoration of the, of the piano at Hitsville. And that's partly because that was so important to him. He used to come, you know, he had visited with his band when he was playing Comerica Park in the mid-2000s. And uh, he couldn't believe that it, it wasn't working. He had to touch it, even though you're not supposed to. He had to try to play it. And he's like, it doesn't work. Because mm-hmm. all those years of listening to that stuff. And they were really into the girl groups, too, the Beatles were. That's, 
you know, they did the Shirelles Boys. They uh, they took Mary Wells on tour in mm-hmm, England, and mm-hmm, yeah, mm-hmm. and they uh, they love the Supremes, and they they go along with all those girls. Yeah, and I just I think like the Supremes sort of are like along with the Temptations are sort of like the point where Motown goes from being this like very regionally and sometimes nationally successful label to like the Motown. Right. Like I don't right. know that we are doing this podcast if the Supremes and the Temptations don't blow up the way that they did. You know? It's true. Although today, if Marvin Gaye seems to be the best known Motown act, which is kind of interesting. But at the time, the Supremes are what blew it open nationally and just boom, went across the board because of this, the whole package. They had it all. They had the looks, the, the glamour, the songwriting. They had, those songs sounded great. And Gordy was very uh, dogged at he, he, he was thinking all the time about how to promote them, how to get them out there. And it kind of seems corny at the time that he had them at the Cabana. But in the early 60s, that was a viable showbiz thing. That's mm-hmm. what you had to kind of that, have that in your repertoire. You know, Steve Allen, you'd have to do some of those shows and be for an adult audience, have a different act. We didn't know then the 60s were going to take a turn and into the 70s and that that adult stuff was no longer cool but mm-hmm. at the time they thought it would go on forever well i mean the amount of records they were selling they probably thought you know <laughs> yeah they thought it would go away too a lot of them like this pop thing's gonna go away and then we're gonna be in nightclubs mm-hmm. we're gonna be like uh, sarah vaughn and we're gonna have to have her an adult career <laughs> it's just kind of what mary mary wilson does today she does a jazz thing because mm-hmm. it, it also suits her voice concludes episode one of this season of the vmp anthology podcast in our next episode we cover the next two albums in the box set albums four and five one of which was the only album the singer ever got to make as a solo artist and the other featuring a stevie wonder co-writer covering the hell out of the beatles see you in a week this season of the vmp anthology podcast is hosted and written by me andrew winnestorfer It's produced by Gabe Harder with assistance from Clay Carnell and Jonah Graber. Remember, listen to more Marvelettes.